0: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line from Zurich, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And our guest this week is Nick Ogden, who is executive chairman of ClearBank. This week, we'll be talking about the launch of ClearBank, the first new clearing bank in the UK for a very long time. We'll also be looking at the latest pay disclosures from Deutsche Bank. And finally, a look at the friction in the US between Wall Street and President Trump's protectionist policies. First, though, to that ClearBank story. Emma, you've been writing about this. This is a new clearing bank which has been launched in the UK. We think of the kind of big four institutions here. This is not a big bank. How does it fit into the setup here?
1: ClearBank claims to be the first clearing bank to have launched in about 200 years since the likes of Lloyds Bank, RBS, HSBC and Barclays launched. And essentially what it does is it plugs in to the main payment systems in the UK. So this is BACs, CHAPs, Faster Payments, and it provides an entry point for other companies, so other banks, fintech companies, to access these payment schemes which will enable them to launch current account propositions for example and ultimately it should boost retail banking competition. So if you look at the building society sector in the UK there are about 44 building societies only two of which can actually offer current accounts and this is largely because of their old technology, I think it's fair to say, but also the expense of having to gain access to the payment systems via the likes of the incumbent banks. So ClearBank should provide a more efficient, cheaper way of doing this.
0: Okay, well, that's a nice little segue into talking to Nick Ogden, who's the executive chairman of ClearBank, who should be on the line. Nick, thanks very much for joining us.
2: Yeah, hi. No, it's my pleasure. Nice to talk to you all.
0: I presume you'd agree with Emma's introduction there that you are a new force shaking up the existing big four clearing banks and potentially allowing a lot of new competition into the market.
2: Yeah, it was summarised quite interestingly this morning on the Today programme as we're a bank for the banks, which is another way of putting this. Why we've come about is that in the UK, as Emma just mentioned, there are four principal clearing banks who provide agency services to the markets. That's a consequence of time. Consolidation in the UK market since 1960 has seen 16 clearing banks become four as the other banks were absorbed by the four remaining market leaders. Part of the challenge of the way the market works is that many of the banks that sit under the agency bank umbrella offer competitive services effectively to a key supplier. There's a problem that automatically emerges as a result of that in relation to pricing, transparency, competition at one end. But I think more of important at the opposite end is technology access and the friction that's created in accessing those payment schemes, if you like, as a sub-member or an agency of those banks, because the technology is legacy. It's not straight through processing. It takes time for transactions to work. Reconciliation isn't automated. And so not only do the agency banks suffer the challenge of not being able to get streamlined access, they also then have to employ people to do manual reconciliation and a raft of other services as a result of the relationship they get. So there's just costs all over the place, which we at ClearBank are aiming to remove.
0: How do you fit into the whole panoply of the system then? Because if you think of The types of new launch institutions that get people excited these days, they're either the kind of front-end peer-to-peer lenders or they're new online-only banks, or in terms of the back office, they are the kind of blockchain-reliant businesses putting together new architecture. It sounds like to me as you're putting together a new version of the old architecture, is that fair? And if that is fair, then will it work? Are you not stuck in the old way of doing things?
2: Well, not really. I think everybody listening to this will know that at some time in their life they'll need a plumber, and a plumber is always expensive. When we started this project back in 2014, in conversations with the regulators of the Bank of England, I started from a position that we had to have a position that was equal to the incumbents. What that meant was that we had to bank with the Bank of England, we had to have direct access to all of the payment schemes where we were a principal member. And so our base level of competition was the same. Our cost level then is obviously substantially different. We've built a massively advanced technology platform that Microsoft says is one of the best in the world that they've ever seen. They've been involved in constructing it. So that they may say that, but we believe their statements in relation to what we've done in relation to cloud architecture and cybersecurity. And so we've created a whole new market position. All the challenger banks that have emerged in the UK over the last few years have agency-bank relationships with one of the existing four incumbent banks. And the consequence of that is that they suffer increased costs and increased friction. We announced ClearBank at 9 o'clock this morning. And before then, we'd got potentially billions of pounds of business in our committed forward pipeline from regulated organizations looking to streamline their processes and operate in a more efficient way, which is what ClearBank offers. And since our launch this morning, the sales pipeline and inquiries that we've had from people looking to work with us, looking to open accounts with us, has increased dramatically. So I think that there's two things happening as a result of that. One is there's interest in the fact that for the first time in many years, there is actually an alternative to talk to that's new. And the second thing is the combination of REG and TECH, which is what we've achieved within ClearBank, where with FINREG, FIGTECH, however you want to describe that, By bringing all of those components together into a bank whereby somebody opens an account and part of the account opening process gives them two technology options to use is completely unique globally.
3: Let's talk
0: finally a little bit, Nick, about your pedigree, because for people who are racking their brains, how do they know this name, Nick Ogden? They maybe remember you from the 1990s, I think it was, when you founded WorldPay, which has gone on to be a pretty big name in that whole payments space. Tell us about your backstory.
2: Well, my bank story is started before WorldPay. I was involved in the creation of the commercial internet in the UK back in 1994, with three other oiks in a flat in Wimbledon, which is where you know many things start. We didn't have a shed; we couldn't afford that, and we ended up building an online shop. And that online shop led us to meet with some guys from Barclays, and you may remember back in 1995 I graced your front page when we launched Barclays Square. After we'd launched Barclays Square, it became very obvious to us that providing payments was one thing, but actually allowing people to buy things was something completely different. And the internet created a challenge because it was stateless. And so, albeit we had online shops in the UK selling goods in pounds, those pricing meant nothing to visitors from overseas. So, WorldPay was born in 1996. We started transacting in 1997 The Dyna Memorial Fund was the first live client, wanted a better description for WorldPay. And the business grew and became very, very successful over a number of years. Again, it was coming at a different market from a different position. We had the opportunity of change. E-commerce and the Internet was just emerging, so there was massive demand, no supply from the incumbent banks at all in relation to their e-commerce product offerings. So we were in a good space. There were a number of parallels, clearly, to the story that we're talking about today with ClearBank.
0: Well, I hope ClearBank is just as successful. Nick Ogden, thanks very much for joining us. Let's move on to our second topic, which is executive pay or banker pay. And Deutsche Bank is in the news, Martin. They've been pretty harsh to their poor bankers.
3: Well, yeah, they have cut their bonus pool for 2016 by almost 80%, we hear from one of their senior managers. But this does come after some pretty dire news from Germany's biggest bank over the last couple of years. They made a loss of 1.4 billion euros last year, and before that, an even bigger loss of 6.8 billion euros. So it's hardly surprising that bonuses are down. Some might ask, why are they paying any bonuses at all? And also, this is offset a little bit by increases in the fixed pay, particularly of their top executives, which comes after EU laws capped bonuses at two times fixed pay. So, all the banks have upped their fixed pay so they can still pay the same amount to their staff. This is, however, by far the most draconian cutback, but it comes amid a climate of overall cuts in the bonus pools, particularly in European banks. I think US banks have been more more generous because typically they're performing better. The European investment banks are still struggling, still generating returns below their cost of capital. So we've seen cuts of some 10 to 15% at places like UBS. There was a slight cut in the Barclays bonus pool even though Barclays returned to profit quite strongly last year. HSBC cut their bonus pool as well. One of the few banks to increase their bonus pool was Lloyd's last year, which interestingly overtook RBS for the first time ever, which is an indication of the diverging fortunes between those two banks that were bailed out by the British government.
0: You mentioned that this is more a European phenomenon than anything else. Does this not again widen the gap between American and European institutions? Presumably, if American banks are paying more generously, they'll be able to hire disaffected bankers from European banks.
3: Yeah, I think so. The European banks aren't completely defenceless. They're still paying bonuses and they still are able to pay very attractive bonuses to those staff they want to maintain. But remember that most of the European banks are still going through restructuring programmes. They're still shedding staff. Barclays has had, for instance, a hiring freeze for most of the past year and has shed 15,000 staff. So if you're shedding that many staff, arguably, you don't need to pay such big bonuses And also they can offset it by changing the way they pay bonuses. So for instance, at Barclays, they have cut slightly their bonus pool whilst they turn from a loss into a profit. But what they have done is they've reduced the amount of bonuses that they're deferring from 46% to 30% of bonuses will be deferred. So the bankers are getting more of their bonuses up front. And Deutsche, as I mentioned, yes, they're cutting bonuses. They didn't really have any choice there, but they have upped the fixed pay of their senior bankers.
0: And of course, when we're talking about cutting bonus pools, that's not the same as cutting individual bankers bonuses, certainly not by the same number if they're cutting headcount at the same time. Thanks very much for that, Martin. Let's move on to our third and final topic, which is signs of friction between Wall Street on the one hand and its policies of wanting to hire people outside the US and President Trump's desire to employ people more in the US and to repatriate jobs. Laura, you wrote a very interesting piece on this with Ben McClanahan the other day from New York and found that, I guess, Gary Cohn, the former Goldman Sachs number 2, is a touchstone for this issue. He was obviously hiring a lot of people for Goldman up to the end of last year, many of them in India, for example. He is now on the other side of the fence as a key ally in Trump's government. How is this all going to pan out and what exactly are we seeing in terms of evidence so far of any change from Wall Street?
4: Just to go back a little bit, I mean, the first thing that we set out to do was basically quantify, because we all know that the US banks employ a lot of people in Asia, but we set out to get a set of numbers in terms of how many. So we worked with a pay consultancy called McClagon, which actually compiles this data, and they were able to tell us that the six biggest US banks employ about 120,000 people in Asia in the support functions, and that is about 12% of their overall headcount. We also looked at how it had been developing over time and it's been increasing over time as the banks look to get more and more cost efficient in a very tough market. Now, we haven't got 2016 figures yet, but anecdotally, consultants in New York told us that banks had effectively been pausing their hiring since the new administration came into office and made their policies so clear. So there seems to be a hope among banks that if they don't hire aggressively going forward, then they're not going to come under pressure to bring back some of the jobs that they already have in Asia. We've also seen the banks have put about 80,000 support jobs in some other U.S. centers. They've gone to the more rural areas of the U.S. That is going to be cheaper than doing it in New York, but still think be more expensive than India. So banks are very incentivized to try to keep these Asian centers alive as much as they can.
0: And basically keep their heads down. When, if any time sooner, are we likely to hear of what exactly the Trump mantra of repatriation and protectionism means in terms of core policy making?
4: That's always one of the great mysteries about the overall Trump administration. He may tweet it in the next hour, he may come out with a formal policy in the next month. I mean, it's hard to imagine a rule which would actually require any company to bring jobs from overseas back to the US. It's probably more likely to be a softer implementation where you come under pressure to do this in exchange for that, particularly in terms of existing jobs. When it comes to actually creating new jobs, you could imagine policies like extra tax incentives to actually get the jobs onshore, or you could be talking about some kind of a penalty for creating jobs offshore. You could also do that through tax. That's probably more likely how you're going to see it rather than actually outright bans.
0: Okay, Laura, thank you very much. That's a very good theme to be watching for the year ahead. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Emma here in the studio, Laura Noonan calling through from Zurich, and also our guest Nick Ogden from ClearBank. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at fg.com. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.